For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. You may be seated. So I'm not sure if any of y'all follow foreign newspapers, but a few weeks ago I received, I would say newspaper clippings, but we don't do that anymore, do we? They're like screenshots or they send you the URL link for the article. Um, but there was this interesting article in The Guardian um, over in England, and um, like almost all news stories, it was just a good bunch of clickbait. What the title was had nothing to do with what was actually being said in the article. And I was sent this one by a bunch of friends who said, oh, you're over in England and, and you know, you're a priest and what does this mean? The second highest ranking person in the Church of England has said that our father is problematic. Well, obviously that makes for a great way to drive traffic to your website. But if you actually read the article, they buried the lead in the story. It's where you, you say something different in the title and the whole point is clickbait. We want you to click there, and then we're going to tell you something completely different. But the Archbishop of York um, said that our father is problematic, and people latched onto that. Oh, my Lord, how can we say that? He's trying to get rid of the Our Father. That's not at all what he said. But here's the thing. We live as human beings, in, and we, we know things by analogy often. We figure them out because we infer them. But if I know this, then I know that in a greater extent I can figure it out because if this works that way, then something larger will work similar to that. So when we hear the word father, we say, oh, God is like my dad. Well, guess what? That could be really, really good if you had a great dad. Or if you have a dad that's like mediocre, it could be a mediocre experience. On the other hand, if you have a dad who was only pleased when you got the grades, or when you performed, or when you behaved, or let's take it even worse, if you had a dad who was a drunk, or was abusive, whether it's verbally or physically, you could totally see why the Archbishop of York could say it could be problematic for some people to, to talk about God as father. But here's what Paul tells us, and we're working our way through the book of Romans over the summer. There's three things that we gather from this passage that we just read. There's the cry of the fatherless, there's the cry of the father, and there's the cry of, oh, my father. The cry of the fatherless. I hinted that a little bit about this idea of fatherlessness. Um, but I love what Paul says there in verse 15. He says, you have not received a spirit of fear or slavery, but you received a spirit of adoption by which you cry, Father. You see, what Paul is trying to get everyone to realize in this letter, he wants us to go all the way back to the beginning. You see, we, we start the words of our creed. We believe in one God, the Father. And it's interesting because, you know, I think many people might say, oh, that idea of God as Father is a, is a good idea. It's the idea that he started everything, but he kind of backed away. He's on vacation, or he, you know, he's, he's an absent dad, but he still sends alimony and child support. But that's not what Paul is saying here. And here's the whole thing. This whole passage is the center of 
not just the book of Romans, not even just the centerpiece of the Gospels or even the centerpiece of the New Testament. It's the centerpiece of the whole story. God is our Father. He's our Father. So He creates humanity, places them in a garden. And it says that He walks with us in the cool of the evening. And He's walking with Adam and Eve, and they have this amazing relationship. So when you think of adoption, what, what do you think adoption is? Well, adoption is a, it's a legal status in which someone is engrafted into a family. But more than just a, a, legal, a legal setting, it is an experience. My wife has a cousin by the name of Mariana. She's uh, nearly 25 years old. Um, this cousin has uh, three other siblings. They're not her biological siblings. She's from Romania. But nearly 25 years ago, her mom and dad, John and Denise, went all the way over to Romania to choose her. They said, we want her. We want her to be part of our family. We want her to have every right and responsibility and, and privilege that it means to be part of John and Denise's family. And that means that you get to share the siblings, and they're just as much a sibling, even if it's not in flesh and blood. They have all, she has all the rights and privileges of a family. You see, when Paul was writing this, um, when he talked about adoption, adoption isn't a new thing. It's been happening for, for centuries. But in, in the first century, in Paul's world, um, adoption was ordinarily reserved for young adult males um, of good character, who were to become heirs and maintain the family name of the childless rich. So here's the thing. There were actually at least four Roman emperors who were adopted. I mean, you, one of them you may be very familiar with. We're going to go into his month, August. Caesar Augustus. He was like a, a, a ne nephew a few times removed from Julius Caesar. It wasn't his biological son. But the whole point is that Julius Caesar said, he's like, you know what? I could trust biology, but I'm not going to leave it to fate. I know that Augustus Caesar is qualified. I want to adopt him and make him my son so that he can become emperor. That's what I want to happen. So adoption was all about this person has performed well, this person will perform well, I want them to be part of my family. But the beauty of what Paul is saying is that that is not at all the way the Christian faith works. It's a story of grace. So think about it this way. Um, it, why do we baptize, why do we have a little font there for children? I mean, come on. They belong to the family before they've ever performed or done anything? They, they haven't done anything to earn a name or a reputation. But we're engrafted into the family of God. We're adopted. And we're given the Holy Spirit by which we cry, Abba, Father. We have not been given a spirit of fear or a spirit of rejection, or a spirit of doing our own thing. And just as adoption is a legal um, happening, there's another legal happening that happened in that garden. You see Adam and Eve are walking in the cool of the night with God, and we just read in Matthew 13, right? There's the, there's the wheat, the, 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 the seed is sown, and the son is the, the children of the kingdom, right? The sons of the kingdom, it says. And then it says that then at night, the, the evil one comes, and he sows. And what does he sow? Weeds. And weeds grow up. 
There in chapter 3 of Genesis, we hear this little whisper in which the enemy says to humanity, God doesn't really love you. God doesn't really have your best intentions in mind. And then we start living with this lie, this spirit of, of being an orphan, of being dejected, of, of not having a father. And there's this desperate cry of fatherlessness. But, but how does that happen? It's because Adam and Eve, in a very legal way, they declare their emancipation. They say, you know what? Yeah, you're my dad, but thank you very much. You took care of me for my 18 years, but... I'm headed off to college. Can I have my inheritance and can I do what I want? And then it's just like in the book of Luke, right? The son looks to the, the prodigal son looks to the father and says, can I have my inheritance? And he goes off to a far off land and spends that inheritance. So there's this fatherless cry that Paul is telling us about in Romans 8. But the second thing that we see is there is a, the cry of the father. Look back to Genesis 3, right? Even though Adam and Eve have run away, God says, Adam, where are you? Now, think about this, right? God's omniscient, right? So is he asking Adam where he is because he needs that information? No. The whole point is he's crying out because he wants his child to come home. He's longing for his child to come home. It's like the story of the prodigal son, right? The son's in the far-off land. The, he, he comes to his senses because he's spent his whole inheritance. He's wasted his, his gift, his birthright, and he comes home, and he's thinking, my dad is going to tell me off. And maybe you have this view of God as father that is a bad view because you may have had a bad experience with family or with church because the church, one of the images we get in the Bible is that the family's church, maybe the family's wounded you. Maybe your brothers and sisters have mistreated you. Maybe... Someone that claimed to speak in the name of Jesus spoke in a way that hurt you. But the son comes to his senses and he comes back and he's wondering, dad's going to chew me out. Like, how many of you think that God is out to blast you? And how many of you think that God is out to bless you? Changes the way you relate to God. Even if you call him father, one's a very like fly off the handle kind of father, and the other one's this amazing father who loves us. But there's this cry of the father, and there in the garden, it's God who's crying out for us. He's the one that wants us to come home. And as the son who's in that far-off country in the Gospel, Luke says, he's making his way home, and it says that while the son was far off, the father, he's almost sitting on his back porch with his rocking chair, sipping his sweet tea. And far off, he sees the son. He runs down the road, falls on his neck, and kisses him, and hugs him, and embraces him. And then he tells all the servants, he says, we have to celebrate. We have to throw a party. My son, who once was dead, is now alive. And sometimes we, we have this, we almost have that older brother idea. We, we see God as, I do this for you, you do this for me. I behave this way, then you're going you're gonna to behave back towards me in a, in, a, in a way. And what does the older son say? All these days have I served you and never once did you throw me a party. He's not even treating his dad like a dad. He's treating him like a boss. Well, not even that, a hired hand. I do this, you pay me, you owe me. But the father is running after his son. Have you ever seen the film Cider House Rules? 
Um, it's got Michael Caine in it. He won an Oscar for that. It's got Tobey Maguire and Charlize Theron. And in it, uh, Michael Caine uh, heads up an orphanage in Maine, in New England. And, um, and you see this picture of all these children looking out the window every day, wondering, will today be the day? Will that 1920s vintage car driving up outside the orphanage, will, will two people come out and bring me into their home? Will I be adopted? Will I be part of the family? Will I be accepted? And all these kids watch out and one is chosen and the rest aren't. Or then they all watch out and the, 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 the soon-to-be parents arrive and, for example, they take Tobey Maguire, Homer, home. And um, a few weeks later, they return him. He's not the adult male that was going to behave the way that we wanted him to. We want to send him back. And they do that two or three times to Tobey Maguire. Something like that will jade you and rejection will, will forever scar you. But there's this beautiful moment that happens in the middle of the movie and then towards the end of the film. Uh, Michael Caine does it before he puts the kids to bed every night. He, they're all in their beds. He flicks the light off in the big hallway. And as he's closing the door, he says, Good night, princes and princesses of Maine. Good night, you kings and queens of New England. Why don't you look to the person to your left or your right and say, You look like royalty. Think about that. You look like royalty. You know why? Because you are a royal priesthood, a chosen people. In fact, not only that, but as you look to your left and right, you could even say, you got your daddy's eyes. You look like your dad. I mean, I love that. I, before the service, I, 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 Penny walked up to me. I was like, that's your daughter, isn't it? Because look, we look like our parents, don't we? And I love that. Those are the words that we are longing to hear. Good night, you princes and princesses of Maine. At the end of the film, Toby McGuire, Homer, um, Michael Caine has since passed away. Um, but Toby has become, Homer's become the new head of the orphanage. And he's putting the kids to bed once again. And he steps into the role. This fatherless man becomes a father to many kids. And as he's flicking the lights off, he says, Good night, you princes and princesses. Of Maine. Those are words that we wish to hear. There's a cry of a father over us. Good night, my child. Which leads me to my third and final point. The cry of, oh, my father. Did you know that father is the favorite way that Jesus had of addressing God? In fact, if you look in the Gospels, so the first four books of the New Testament, God has addressed his Father 175 times. So if you don't think that it's Jesus' favorite way, I think the numbers show that. And then in the whole of the New Testament, God has addressed his Father 250 times. It's amazing. And, and not only that, it's such a part of the first century understanding of who Jesus understood God to be, but also how he wanted the rest of us the church to relate to God, that the word remains untranslated to this day. It says, for we received a spirit option by which we cry, Abba, Father. 
guess what? Go on any bus in Tel Aviv or go on any bus in Riyadh, Saudi Arabia, either place. Any place where they speak a Semitic language, whether it's Hebrew, Arabic, or Aramaic, and you will still hear that word, Abba, Papa, Daddy. But why are we able to cry out, Daddy? Because the Holy Spirit has been shed abroad in our hearts, and we are able to respond to His overtures of love. Now, you might say, okay, okay, I, I kind of understand that, but I don't really like the language of that it says sons, and can't we just say children? Well, actually, Paul uses children at one point, and then he uses sons in the same passage. Paul, Paul is very precise with his language, believe it or not. Here's why he chooses son. Because in the first century, women were not able to inherit squat. Paul's being very revolutionary. He's saying, guess what? All you women in this church in Rome, you're all sons. And guess what? He, he'll say it later on in Ephesians, right? He'll mess with us men. He'll say, hey, guess what? You're all the bride of Christ. So if, if, you know, we men have to put up with being called the bride of Christ, then all you ladies can put up with being called sons. But for a reason. It's because you have rights and privileges that was never afforded to women. That's, what, that's why I love using that. Not, not because it's problematic, like, they misread or misunderstood the Archbishop of York. But the point is that we're called sons because we are sons and we are daughters. We are adopted. We are ingrafted with all the rights and privileges of that. The theologian Jim Packer put it this way. And you see, we've been reading through um, the book of Romans. It talks about justification. It talks about redemption. It talks about expiation. It has all these fun, fancy words. But the crux of the whole Bible is adoption. Adoption, Jim Packer says, is the highest privilege that the gospel offers, higher even than justification. To be right with God, the judge, is it's a great thing. But to be loved and cared for by God the Father is even greater. How do we get the ability to cry out, Abba, Father? This is what will melt your heart and will give you the ability to experience that. And you know what? Maybe, maybe you've had a bad experience. Or maybe you're just wanting those words spoken over. You won't, we'll have a time for prayer ministry where the prayer team, uh, prayer, prayer ministers who are trained can, can pray for you so that you can experience the Father's love, that spirit of adoption. Jesus' favorite way of referring to God was Father. In fact, he uses the word Abba, Father, in Mark chapter 14. Where? In another garden. Just like Adam and Eve were in the first garden, there's another garden in the Garden of Gethsemane. And Jesus uses the word Abba, Father. And I'm pretty sure that that's why Paul is using the words Abba, Father. He says, Abba, Father, you know all things. Let this cup pass from me. Yet not my will, but your will be done. Because you see, there in the first garden, Adam turns to God and he says, My will be done, not thy will. In another garden, Jesus looks at his father and he says, Thy will be done, not my will. 
And because of that, we have the guarantee that we will be engrafted into that family. And I said that Jesus loved referring to God as Father. Every prayer, he always called him Father. He taught us our Father who art in heaven. There's one prayer where he didn't do that. One time. Only one time. It was on the cross. And he only says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And you see, he goes to this God-forsaken wilderness to bring us back into the garden, to bring us back into the family, to bring us to this table. Let me read you, or let, us, let me pray a prayer over us. It's a prayer that was written in 1549 that talks about coming to a table to eat as a family. We do not presume to come to this, your table, merciful Lord, trusting in our own righteousness. But in your manifold and great mercies, we are not worthy so much as to gather up the crumbs under your table. But you are the same Lord whose nature is always to have mercy. Grant us, therefore, gracious Lord, so to eat the flesh of your dear Son, Jesus Christ, and to drink his blood, that our sinful bodies may be made clean by his body and our souls washed through his most precious blood, and that we may evermore dwell in him and he in us. Amen.